So uh, Romans uh, 3, uh, 27, look look with me at God's word. Uh, Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Whereas God, the God of Jews only, is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. This is the word of our Lord. Well, who's the most arrogant boaster that you know of? The the person who most arrogantly boasts, most frequently, most loudly? As you think about that person, there's no need to share that. I think it might only cause problems. But when I think of uh, the the most arrogant boaster, um, I know that we all should open scripture and consider Satan. Uh, In fact, in Jude 3, uh, Jude says that the wicked angels didn't stay in their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. Uh, Satan is a wicked angel who didn't stay as he was created and as he was intended, uh, but he elevated himself. There's an interesting passage in Isaiah chapter 14, where Isaiah is talking uh, about the king of Babylon. But it also seems, as he calls the king of Babylon the day star, and it also seems as though that as he's talking about the king of Babylon, he may also be talking about Satan and how Satan got where he is. In Isaiah 14, verses 13 and 14, Isaiah says this, again, primarily the king of Babylon, but boy, it sounds an awful lot like there's something to be learned here about Satan. Isaiah says, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. And it sounds like, well, it sounds like the most wicked kind of boasting there is. Boasting about the tragic act of setting God aside and elevating Self. And so when we think about who is the, the uh, most boastful boaster, the most arrogant boaster, to be sure we need to consider what the Bible says about Satan. But I want to offer to you another uh, arrogant boaster. This arrogant boaster is a 23-year-old from Modena, Italy in the 15th century. Now you may think, how strange to go there. But I want you to just listen to this boaster's words. This, is, this man is uh, a man by the name of Giovanni Pico della Mirandola. How's that for a mouthful? Well, Giovanni, as we're going to call him, uh, grew up as basically an only child. Uh, his uh, two older brothers were very much older than him and out of the house. And so he grows up as an only child. His father was a very, very wealthy lord. And his mom's family was very wealthy as well, but his mom's family uh, was filled with very notable uh, artists and poets of the Italian Renaissance. And uh, Giovanni, as he uh, grew up, uh, he grew up with not only uh, uh, living in a place of great luxury, Giovanni grew up in a castle, but he also grew up with a luxurious education, the best education that money could buy. And he was a brilliant 
young man. He could memorize everything. And not only this, he was uh, precocious. He was a a handful. He was the kind of kid who was always uh, pushing the parental envelope. And as he was succeeding in school, he kept rising to the attention of others, uh, even to the attention of the Pope, who pronounced honors upon him, even when he was at the age of 10. Giovanni Pico de la Mirandola, smart, precocious kid. And as he is uh, studying, I believe, in Ferrara, Uh, At the age of 13, his mother died. And the historians don't say this, but descriptions sound like when his mom died, he snapped. And he left the church, being prepared for the church, receiving, receiving honors from the Pope in hopes that he would serve the church. And he just, he just snapped. And he renounced the church. He changed his education so that he began to study uh, philosophy. He uh, had already mastered uh, Greek uh, and Hebrew. Uh, He mastered uh, Latin and uh, Arabic. And he began to study uh, old Jewish texts. And in many ways, his intellect uh, grew and grew and grew uh, even after he had renounced the church. And Giovanni traveled around the world visiting centers of humanist education and he continued to study and he continued to memorize and he continued to be precocious. Well, Giovanni was one of those men who believed that philosophy has taught him to rely upon his own convictions rather than than any of the judgments of others. And if you know uh, anything about Renaissance history, this is one of the fathers of Renaissance humanism. And uh, when he was 23 years old, he wrote a collection of 900 theses. And they were a a rebuttal against the entire leadership of the church, even the leadership of God himself. And he wrote a defense of his 900 theses called an oration on the dignity of man. Doesn't it just sound awe-inspiring? And when you sit down to read, it's very short, the oration on the dignity of man, uh, you uh, hear this 23-year-old ranting with extraordinary intellectual acumen on how his reason is better than any reason that might be derived from God, how he is the independent one and God is the dependent one. Giovanni says this, he says, let a certain ambition invade our souls. This is his advice. Let let an ambition invade our souls so that impatient for mediocrity, we pant after the highest things. We bend all of our efforts to their attainment. Let us disdain the things of earth, hold as little worth even the astral orders in putting behind us all the things of this world, hasten to that great court beyond the world, closest to the most exalted Godhead. And Giovanni goes on, uh, there as sacred mysteries tell us the seraphim, the cherubim, and thrones occupy the first places, but unable to yield to them and impatient of any second place, impatient of any second place, let us emulate their dignity and glory, and if we will it, 
we shall be inferior to them in nothing. Wow. Glorious stuff, isn't it? He says, if you see a philosopher judging and distinguishing all things according to the rule of reason, him you shall hold in veneration, for he is a creature of heaven and not of earth. A pure contemplator, unmindful of the body, wholly withdrawn into the inner chambers of the mind. Here, indeed, is neither a creature of earth nor a heavenly creature, but some higher divinity clothed in human flesh. What a turn of phrase. 23 years old. You know, we blame a lot of problems on millennials, but this millennial... Well, it's important to note because here we have a glorious picture of a boaster. And I mention this not merely because this young man uh, is one of the fathers of uh, humanism, but this young man's book was the first printed book banned by the church. Every copy was burned. And Giovanni fled to France and ultimately died from arsenic poisoning. He was murdered at age 31. So, uh, jump to the present. Uh, Who are the most arrogant boasters in your mind? Perhaps it's a celebrity we just tire of seeing on TV all the time. Or perhaps it's an athlete or a politician. Who is the most arrogant boaster? But but I wonder if we we might say that whoever it is is certainly not a Christian, right? But when you look at Romans 3.27, what does Paul say? Paul says, what then becomes of our boasting? There's something about verse 27 that while it's not explicitly clear in the Greek, reads very personally. It would seem that even we as Christians are susceptible to a kind of boasting such that Paul would say, Well, okay, what then becomes of our boasting? The reminder here is to us. The letter here is written to Christians in Rome. The theme of our passage this morning is this. Our accomplishments can't be the subject of boasting because our accomplishments lack the ultimate power to save. Our accomplishments can't be the subject of boasting because our accomplishments lack the power to save. And Paul begins then in verses 27 and 28 talking about this relationship between faith and boasting. Uh, Paul, as we noted, uh, begins what becomes of our boasting. But we should note that boasting can actually be good. There are times when uh, this very word for boasting is used in Holy Scripture uh, positively. And so at the very end of Romans, in Romans 15, 17, Paul says, In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. I have reason to boast of my work for God. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul will say this. He says, As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And so there's a kind of boasting that Paul's willing to allow 
But here Paul seems to be referring to a, a specific a kind of boasting. Uh, uh, linguists who look at this particular use of the word here in 327 uh, say that, that, that Paul is using the word with a certain kind of intensity. He's referring not to uh, boasting in general. He's referring to uh, a, 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 a volume of boasting. It's boasting that's turned too loud. What I think Paul is doing is he's referring to a passage we've already looked at. Back in Romans chapter 2, there were a couple of verses there that tell us uh, what kind of boasting Paul is talking about, such that in 2.17 we read, you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God. 2.17, you call yourself a Jew and you rely on the law and you boast in God. It's that kind of boasting that Paul's talking about. And then in Romans 2, verse 23, that was 2.17. In 2.23, Paul has said this. He said, you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. There is a kind of boasting that is a boasting about small accomplishments in the law meant to change God's perspective, to to, uh, actually market to God. You see, boasting, even in these small accomplishments in the law, well, the law is meant to humble us. The law is meant to point us to our sin. And so even this little bit of boasting is proving what Paul is saying. Blaise Pascal said that knowing God without knowing our own wretchedness makes for pride. Think about that. Knowing God without knowing our own wretchedness, it's just going to to result in pride. And Paul is saying there's something about the volume of boasting among a certain, certain body of people in the church at Rome in which their boasts are actually an attempt to weaken God, to excuse sin. And Paul interestingly says it's our boasting. Now he's not explicit But we need to confess that all of us also have this tendency of elevating our accomplishments a little too much. We talk too much about our accomplishments. Paul later is going to give us permission to talk about accomplishments because he himself does in Romans 15 and in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. But Paul is saying to us that there is, there's a sense in which we run the risk ourselves of talking too much about our accomplishments. We need to watch our volume. We need to watch the frequency. And all of us should take this to heart. There's an application here. Uh, does every conversation of ours begin with uh, some notion of our status or our past or our, well, our education? And Paul is admonishing believers to watch where the volume knob is set. But he's describing a process here. In this very verse, he says, what becomes of our boasting? We could say, uh, what, what about our boasting? What are we to do with that? When we recognize, recognize that in our lives, how do we make sense of that? And I think Paul wants us to consider that as Christians. 
And this is the, the uh, image of our children cleaning their room and taking items or, or the image of a, uh, preparing for a garage sale and, and going through the house and picking some items that are going to stay and some items that are going to be sold. And, and Paul is saying, so, uh, so what then becomes of that boasting? What are we to do with that? And then at the very end of verse 27, Paul says, boasting well, it's excluded. It's shut out. It's locked outside. Paul, Paul here is being very, very clear. Boasting is meant to be locked out. But how does this happen? Well, boasting, I hope all of us can admit, is rather enjoyable and comes rather naturally. And it's personal. It's something about us. So, how does something personal and enjoyable become locked out? Wouldn't it be wonderful to be liberated from that kind of boasting? When someone says something to you, you don't naturally think of yourself. You don't instinctively uh, think how you can spin this conversation so that you don't look as bad as you really are. Wouldn't it be wonderful to be liberated from that? All of us inside of our hearts, we have this little advertising department, a piece of machinery that's always at work. C.S. Lewis commented on his own life that uh, when he imagines himself, he imagines himself as on the center of the stage and everyone uh, walks around him. He's the director. He controls everything that's happening on that stage. Uh, our little ad agency in our hearts never goes to sleep. Wouldn't it be wonderful to be liberated from that? To talk to people, have a relationship with them that is unfettered by your own desire to elevate self. I hope that sounds enticing to you, but how does it happen? Well, Paul goes on and he says that it happens not by a law of works, but by a law of faith. Uh, there is a law, a law of faith, that actually shuts boasting out of the equation. And naturally, we want to know what this is all about. But here, when Paul mentions a, a law of works and a law of faith, he doesn't mean law in terms of the Ten Commandments or the law of the Old Testament here. Uh, here, scholars agree that Paul is using law as a, uh, as a principle. Uh, it's, a, it's a figure of speech in which he describes two ways in which we uh, approach God. We approach God in a principle of works or we approach God in a principle of faith, a legal way or a faith way. So there's movement all over this passage. One is boasting, uh, what becomes of it? How does boasting get, get overshadowed or eclipsed or pushed out of the picture? And what Paul says is he says that it's this principle of faith that begins to overtake us uh, and replace the principle of law. And so he says to approach God in a legal way, well, that's the principle of works. It's to look at God in a certain way. It's to look at God as a taskmaster whom you actually have the power to appease. Not a taskmaster who is holy and majestic and completely other. But you look at God, if you have a, a legal way of approaching God, you look at God as a taskmaster in which you have some kind of power to keep him happy. Now, you may not keep him perfectly happy all of the time. 
But somewhere inside your psyche, you believe that you can keep him mostly happy most of the time. Most days. Human achievement uh, becomes a a measurement of sorts to you. You look at human achievement uh, as uh, connected to your justification in some way, even if it's just a small way. You're approaching him according to a legal principle, Paul would say. Which means this, which means that there's hope for you if you can earn your justification. Not not, uh, keep God mostly happy most of the time. Entirely happy, fully happy, completely satisfied. And not for part of the time, for all of the time. All ages, you need to keep God perfectly satisfied. Now Paul is saying that this this legal uh, principle, this legal way of approaching God is entirely different than what he is preparing us to see. And that is the faith way of approaching God. What Paul is saying is he's saying that this uh, legal way of approaching God is always going to result in failure. He's already said that that is true both for the Jew and for the Gentile. That there is no one who uh, has this special property called God's law that they can master and turn into salvation and justification. Neither the Gentile nor the Jew has that. Paul's been very clear. So the legal approach to God is an utter failure. To approach God in a faith way is to approach God with a principle, not of works, but a principle of faith. Praise God that the Holy Spirit defines what Paul means by this principle of faith in the next verse. In 3.28, Paul says, uh, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. What Paul is saying is he's saying that this, that this faith principle and this works principle couldn't be more different. They're utterly separate. So in verse 28, uh, he is saying that we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of law. We actually could read apart from as without, without works of the law. Think about how extraordinary that statement is in verse 28. We hold that one is justified apart from works of the law. One is justified completely without the works of the law. How is that even possible? Well, the legal approach to God is certainly useless. But Paul doesn't allow us to turn that useless principle uh, away and leave nothing in its place. He leaves something that's radically different in its place. Now, we want to say this. Just a very quick pause. We want to jump down to 3 verse 31. And we want to acknowledge that works of the law are still important. Paul there uh, says that, he says that as he closes, and and that's where I want us to finish, but uh, let's make sure that we're not reading here that Paul says uh, that the Ten Commandments are completely and utterly unimportant. But in terms of salvation, the law, the principle of works, is the wrong tool for the job. It's not the wrong tool for the job that can sometimes get the job done. It is completely the wrong tool for the job. So the tool of the law is great at a couple of things, but it's not great at salvation. The tool of the law is great, for instance, at keeping social order, telling us that that murder is bad, that adultery is bad, 
This law, it's it's really great at keeping social order, uh, laying down uh, principles for uh, societal functioning. And the law is also great at reminding us of our own sinfulness. Uh, The the law is very good at uh, reminding us that we are a people who need God's grace for salvation. It reminds us of how sinful we are. Paul says it gives us the knowledge of sin. So the law is great at that. So there's two things. There's actually a third. The law is very good at helping us to live holy lives before God, to live in a way as Christians that is actually pleasing to God, to uh, measure our holiness and measure our gratitude for what he has done for us in salvation. And there's another use. So there's, there's three uses of the law, and those are all good. But it still won't save. For that, the principle of faith is necessary. And Paul refers to this law of faith, this principle of faith, as being the very opposite of the principle of works. Let me give you just a few examples. I I think this is what Paul is after. Uh, There is nothing that uh, you can, uh, or the law would tell, the principle of law would say that uh, if you do this, you will get this. If you do something, you'll receive something. Do and receive. That's what the principle of work says but the principle of faith says there's nothing that you can do that's radically different do and you'll receive and there's nothing that you can do if the principle of work says you get what you deserve what do you think the principle of faith says you don't get what you deserve The principle of work says you get what you deserve. The principle of faith, you don't get what you deserve. You get far better than you deserve. And if the principle of work says uh, boasting is sometimes appropriate, doesn't that sound humble? The principle of work says boasting is sometimes appropriate. What Paul is saying here is he's saying that the principle of faith tells us that boasting is not even a natural part of the vocabulary. He says that, that we're justified by faith apart from or without works of the law you see what Paul is saying here those who would argue uh, that faith is just another kind of work I'm not following the ten commandments for salvation but I am exercising faith and it's not the ten commandments that save me it's my work of faith that saves me but Paul doesn't defend that here in fact he doesn't defend it anywhere faith is not a work When Paul is describing the the principle of works and the principle of faith, he is describing these these, uh, two things that are entirely separate from one another. To say that faith is a work is to talk about the principle of works. Faith isn't a work. Well, let me talk just a little bit about boasting, and then I want to explain how this principle of faith actually works. You see, there's a number of ways we can think about our boasting and and kind of getting it under control so that uh, we don't let it run crazy in our lives. And we would uh, naturally say this. We would say that in order to uh, stop boasting, we just need to cultivate that habit of thinking of others more highly than we think of ourselves or thinking of others more significantly than we think of ourselves. And the Bible actually says this, and Paul would say, yes, do this. Think about others more than you think about yourself. That's one way to keep that boasting in order. But notice that that's very temporary. That we can do that some of the days, but not not every day. And notice this, that that's not the kind of behavior that's ever going to earn God's favor. 
We can't fool ourselves into thinking that uh, the more I consider others better than myself, then the more I can count on my salvation. And Paul would say no, because the principle of works and the principle of faith are too different. So, yes, consider others more than yourself, but don't ever think that in the act of considering others more significant than yourself, you are actually earning your salvation. You can do it, but it's very temporary. Paul is telling us something very different here. Paul is telling us this. He's saying not just do your works differently. Stop thinking about self. Begin thinking about others. Stop doing things for self. Begin doing things for others. Paul's not saying that. With regards to salvation, he's saying this. Stop everything. Stop everything. Works are no longer a part of the equation. Uh, to repent of your works is to uh, look, uh, is not to merely uh, look at others with uh, a better disposition and elevate them. To repent of your works by looking not to others is sure a gesture of selflessness. But what Paul is saying is that the principle of faith works this way. It's looking not to others with a gesture of selflessness. It's looking to God with a gesture of helplessness. For boasting to become something else in your life, to roll away from your life, Paul is saying it's not a matter of looking to others with a gesture of selflessness. It's looking to God with a gesture of helplessness, lostness, no work at all nothing left do you have to offer to God now we know that boasting continues to trouble us as Christians but may we never understand our salvation as salvation that is based on me not boasting very much the principle of faith says you do nothing you have nothing and you trust you wait and he does everything Paul's a pastor he's a theologian and a good one moved by the Holy Spirit but he's a pastor and what Paul does is he offers a couple of questions he's actually applying what he has taught us this principle of works and principle of faith they are so uh, very different and I can grow as a person by uh, boasting less and less and less. But I will never grow as a Christian uh, by, uh, unless I stop all of my works altogether and trust God on my behalf. And he actually applies it here. Now it's hard to see, so let's walk through it. Paul says in verses 29 and 30, Is God the God of Jews only, or both Jews and Gentiles? Well, he clearly implies that God is the God of both. That's really what the question is leaning towards. The, the answer is, God is the God of both. And then Paul does something strange, but it's very practical. He focuses on the issue of circumcision. Now, he's talked about circumcision uh, before. But why is he doing so now? He says that the, the, that the circumcised is justified by faith. And he says that the uncircumcised is justified through faith. Do you see that difference justified by faith, justified th through faith? One commentator says that this has stimulated the ingenuity of commentators for years. What does Paul mean? 
And this commentator says that it's just, uh, it's just stylistic. The circumcised, they're justified by faith. And the uncircumcised, they're justified through faith. And this man says that they both mean the same thing. But I wonder, if because the majority of the congregation in Rome are uncircumcised, they're Gentiles, I wonder if when he says that the uncircumcised is justified through faith, he's making uh, an evangelistic offer there. He's, he's tempting them. You're the majority of the audience, and he's tempting them to come to God through faith. The uncircumcised is justified through faith. Come and taste this salvation. But he's, he's actually saying something very practical, and here's, how, here's what he is saying. He's saying circumcision doesn't, doesn't save. The act of circumcision, it doesn't save. Because the circumcised is justified by faith, and the uncircumcised is justified by faith. So what is he saying? Well, when he says circumcision doesn't save, there are two audiences in the church of Rome that are hearing this. There's an audience of those who are circumcised, and he says to them, circumcision doesn't save, and this humbles them. This humbles them. It reminds them that the work that they've performed is not the basis of their salvation, because after all, circumcision doesn't save. Works don't save. And yet these are people who are circumcised. And what Paul is saying to them is, is, is he's saying, don't get ahead of yourself. Don't think that it is your work that has saved you. Does that apply to us today? It most certainly applies to us today. But Paul is saying to those who go to church on a regular basis that your church going does not save you. Paul says that, that those who read the Bible every day, uh, he says to them that it's not your Bible reading that saves you. For those who are growing in holiness, uh, even holiness in comparison to others, uh, Paul is saying uh, your holiness, it doesn't save you. And so it's humbling to say circumcision doesn't save. If he says circumcision doesn't save, the person who likes to elevate their own holiness before the holiness of someone else, what's Paul saying? He's saying, well, well, wait a minute. Your holiness doesn't save you. Isn't that beautiful? It's painful, but it's so practical. Circumcision doesn't save, and those who are circumcised hear that in a certain way. But there's also those who are not circumcised. How do they hear that? Circumcision doesn't save. Well, to them it says this. It says that Christianity is not a system. Don't for a moment think that Christianity is just a matter of uh, combining all of your efforts and doing something different than the pagans would do. Because circumcision doesn't save. It actually offers surprising hope to those who are not circumcised. If you thought that Christianity was just some other works righteousness religion, just like all of the other religions of the world, be surprised. Because circumcision doesn't save. Do you see how practical Paul is being here? For those who are circumcised, they're humbled. And for those who are not circumcised, they're enticed. Christianity is something different. And then Paul, at the very end, offers another question. So 29 through 30, practical question about the nature of circumcision and what it offers. And there he holds up the principle of faith. Circumcision doesn't save. We are saved by faith through God's grace. And the second question is, do we overthrow the law by this faith? Verse 31. That word for overthrow, is, is, it's pretty strong. Do we abolish, do we uh, ignore the law by this faith? 
Well, Paul says no. Absolutely not. But this time when we see the word law, I think there, what he means in verse 31 is he's referring to the Old Testament. This is a reference to the Old Testament, to the Ten Commandments. And so when he says, do we overthrow the law by this faith? He says, do we overthrow the Old Testament? You see, verse 31, please listen carefully. It's, a, it's not an argument for following the Old Testament uh, any, uh, anyway. It's, it's, it's not an argument in which Paul is saying, yes, we'll forget everything I just said. We're going to follow the Old Testament anyway. That's, that's not what Paul is saying. He's not arguing for a kind of obedience to the Old Testament here. Instead, he's arguing for the doctrine of Scripture, that the way we come to faith, that the principle of faith is exactly what's taught in the Old Testament. That's, that's what Paul means in verse 31 when he says, we uphold the law. We uphold the Old Testament because the principle of faith is taught from beginning to end in the Old Testament. We've already talked about the law having a good purpose. The law reminds us of our need for Jesus Christ. The law reminds us how to walk as Christians. But here, what Paul is saying is he's saying that the Old Testament has proclaimed this very same message, that we are not saved by works, that we are saved by faith. I wish Christians would pay closer attention to this. It's surprising to me that so many Christians will look at the Old Testament as a law book as if they weren't saved at all. The, the principle of faith, yes, I believe it. I believe it theoretically because when I read the Old Testament, I don't see any of the principle of faith there. I, I instead see rules. But Christ is all over the Old Testament. We believe that the Old Testament fits seamlessly with the New Testament, that the New Testament is a fulfillment of the principle of faith in the Old Testament. That's what Paul is saying. We uphold the law. Our very lives prove that the Old Testament is true. See, the Old Testament tells us that our, our accomplishments can't be the subject of boasting because our accomplishments lack the power to save. The Old Testament tells us that just as clearly as these verses. Now, upholding that law, upholding that Old Testament, there is a kind of boasting that Paul opens the door to. We could say it this way. We could say that uh, that young man, Giovanni Pico della Mirandola, the, the boasting is okay in a sense, but he's doing it all wrong. Paul is going to say in Romans chapter 5 that we rejoice in our sufferings, and that word that he uses for rejoice is boasting. We boast in our sufferings. That's how Christians boast if they're upholding the law. They have approached God in the principle of faith. They've set aside all of their works, and they've received the work of Jesus Christ on their behalf for salvation. Now what does their life look like? Well, their life looks crazy because they are not boasting about themselves. They're boasting in their sufferings. Paul says also in Romans 5, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we've now received reconciliation. They boast in God through Jesus Christ. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, let the one who boasts, what? Boast in the Lord. Uh, boasting has, has taken on in a completely different color. And they do boast, but they're boasting in the work of Christ on their behalf. They're boasting about what Jesus is doing through them. Even in their sufferings, they are boasting. 
They're boasting more and more in life so that a part of their Christian growth is that they're able to boast even more. What are they boasting about? Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 12, Jesus said to me this, my grace is sufficient for you and my power is made perfect in weakness. That's the principle of faith. Showing up before God completely naked, absolute weakness, having nothing to offer at all. And Jesus says to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. And that's what Jesus says to you if you profess faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul Paul responds with this. He says, therefore, I will boast. I will boast. And not only that, I will boast all the more gladly. The boasting, uh, almost it's, it's been set aside so that it can become something different in light of faith. And it is set aside. And it does become something different. Because Paul says, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. Why? Because it's his weakness that's the doorway to salvation in the first place. So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. 2 Corinthians 12.9. Boasting is set aside. But when you profess faith in Jesus Christ, boasting is given a new lease on life. I don't think that Giovanni Pico della Mirandola knew that. But as arrogant as he is, as boastful and full of pride as he is, Christian, do you show that same energy and vitality in your regard for your own weakness? and the greatness of your king who saved you. Not by your works, but by his works. The energy of Pico de la Mirandola, that ought to be somewhere in our lives, shouldn't it, Christian? Those saved by the principle of faith? Let's pray together. Our Holy Father, we do thank you that you've saved us in this way. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that you have been so patient with us, loving sinners when there was nothing lovable about them at all. No works, nothing that would make them stand higher in relationship to others. Sinners under the curse of condemnation, wandering in darkness. And you were rich in mercy. We thank you, Father, for saving us through faith by the work of Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray, amen.